is this a real solution for these very serious patients so that maybe people won't progress to respirators or maybe people can get off respirators. It could be a huge contribution. And because we've all worked so fast together, it's possible that we could have answers within a few weeks, which is astonishing because this is what everybody's praying for, right? Everybody's praying that if God forbid they or their loved ones or their friends are in this position where they're at the high risk of dying, physicians can offer them something that is proven to dramatically increase their chance of success. So from your lips to God's ears, let's hope this all works out and let's hope the data is great and let's hope the FDA approves it. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I Am Bio. Well, there aren't many Americans busy or more critical to public health right now than our next guest, Dr. George Yankopoulos. He's the president, co-founder, and chief scientific officer at Regeneron. He's the principal inventor of seven different FDA-approved drugs, all homegrown in Regeneron's labs. And he's a key player in the global response to the novel coronavirus because two Regeneron products hold the potential to save lives and to help us weather the worst global pandemic in a century. So welcome to I Am Bio. It's great to be here, Jim. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, thank you so much. But before we go into the, the medicines you're working on, that have so much promise in this outbreak. Um, I wonder how your team is doing, because many, most Americans, increasingly more and more of us are social distancing and we're working from home, hoping and praying that our industry will deliver some kind of solutions for us. But your team has to be, much of your team has to be at the lab and, and doing clinical work. So how's, how, is your, how are your folks able to do this life-saving work in the lab, staying safe? Yeah, so first and foremost, I mean, we're we're part of, society. We, like everybody else, we we already have family members, friends, friends of friends who have been affected by this. We all know people who are hospitalized or on respirators. Uh, we actually know, you know people who've already died mm. due to this tragic disease. It's gotten personal for all of us. Uh, just like many, if not most of our, our projects start with a personal connection my daughter takes one of the drugs that I personally invented for asthma and atopic dermatitis. Um, you know, my mother had macular degeneration where we have another drug. I take, I take our, our, our heart disease drug. Uh, we do these things cause we're just like everybody else. And we're, we're out there and we're part of society and we have family members, friends, relatives, and, and we care about this cause we're part of humanity here. So and it's hit very close to home for so many of us, just like all of our programs. I mean, we fight disease because we know the impact it can have, and this is one that could have a devastating impact. We are at work taking all possible precautions. I mean, certainly all people who don't have to be in the labs, it's all about the density, uh, decreasing interactions, decreased potential for spread, making sure people are protected. We've undertaken shift work um, so that you know the, uh, the density is very low in the labs. So it minimizes the chances. So people are relatively isolated. We're doing whatever we can to protect people, um, minimizing possibilities of contaminations and so forth. But it's a challenge. Let's talk about your medicine, because I know 
one of your the medicines that seems to be promising is really um, designed for rheumatoid arthritis, Kevzara. It seems to hold um, real promise, uh, particularly for some of the sickest patients. So tell us, help us understand why an arthritis drug would um, come to the fore here. There's vaccines. Then there's our approach where we literally produce recombinant antibodies, which are what vaccines try to generate that are against the virus themselves that can bind and kill and neutralize the virus. But before that, and what might bring some hope before that is comes out of some incredible pioneering work and maybe brave work, uh, maybe lucky work, I don't know which, coming out of China. So when they were dealing with this horrific epidemic themselves, when it was breaking out, um, one of the first things that you do when you have a new disease and you have no treatment for it, and there's no vaccine, there's no antibody like what we're hoping to produce shortly, um, um, there's no other drugs against them. What people do is they literally try anything because they're desperate. Because in that case, people are going to the hospital, people are going to respirators, people are dying. What do you do? And so they just tried, for example, every antiviral, anything that might have worked against AIDS. Now, AIDS drugs are designed against the AIDS virus, so they're unlikely to work against an unrelated virus, but people are desperate. They tried those. They tried, uh, for example, a drug that um, failed in Ebola um, that was in the same trial in which our drug worked, but it was an antiviral, so they tried that. They were trying everything. And then one, like I said, I guess, I assume, I don't even know exactly who it was, a clever man or woman, um, or maybe a very lucky one, um, started thinking that, you know, maybe it's not the virus. All these people are having breathing problems. They're getting this really bad pneumonitis. It looks like acute respiratory distress syndrome. They're having trouble breathing and they're eventually going on ventilators. I, I don't think it's the, the virus maybe that's causing all the damage to the, um, to the lungs. Uh, I actually think it's that the body is overreacting. It's almost like a excess inflammatory reaction. It's almost like an auto-inflammatory reaction of the lung. And so they said, well, there are auto-inflammatory diseases where the body attacks itself. Why don't I take a drug that's really powerful in some of these auto-inflammatory diseases, and maybe it can help this apparent inflammatory disease of the lung that is being triggered by the virus. And so they looked around, um, and they chose one of the most powerful rheumatoid arthritis drugs because rheumatoid arthritis is an auto-inflammatory disease. And this drug was actually a drug that was originally developed by a great Japanese company known as Shugai. Um, and eventually, I think it got, uh, at least in some parts of the world, is now sponsored by Roche in terms of this drug. And this is a drug that blocked a particular inflammatory agent known as interleukin-6 or IL-6. And so they, they basically thought that maybe if I block this inflammatory agent, IL-6, that works to reduce the inflammation in joints in rheumatoid arthritis, maybe it's the same type of inflammation. There's a reason, there was a reason to think it's the same type of inflammation. Uh, there's many different kinds of inflammation in the body. Uh, if you have eosinophilic inflammation, that's the sort of inflammation that you see with allergic disease. And for example, we've shown that our drug dupilumab works in allergic inflammation. That's why it works in asthma and atopic dermatitis and eosinophilic esophagitis and chronic rhinositis with nasal polyps because all of those inflammations are eosinophilic inflammations. The kind of inflammation that you see with rheumatoid arthritis is 
neutrophilic inflammation. It just means a different kind of white blood cell uh, invades and causes that inflammation. And that was the kind of inflammation they were seeing in the lungs. They had actually seen the lungs of, unfortunately, patients who had died, and they were filled with neutrophilic inflammation. So they tried this blocker of neutrophilic inflammation, that is the blocker of the interleukin-6 receptor, um, and they, in anecdotes, um, uncontrolled studies, they were claiming in the most severe and critical patients, pretty amazing results. Um, and a lot of people took notice because they were trying, like I said, they were trying literally the expression, everything under the kitchen sink. They were trying everything that they had. And apparently the only thing that generated excitement, even though in an uncontrolled fashion, was this one drug for the most severe and critical patients. Other drugs seem to maybe have activity in early stages of disease. You've probably heard like hydrox uh, um, hydroxyquinoline for malaria, malaria drug. Um, that, that might have some activity in earlier stages of disease. But the only thing that got excited about the, um, uh, in the very late stage patients seemed to be this. And we took a lot of notice because there's only one other uh, approved drug in the United States for rheumatoid arthritis against the very same target, a very similar, in fact, antibody. I mean, we think there's some reasons ours might be a little bit better. Ours is fully human. There's is humanized. There's other minor differences. But more or less, the drugs, I think, are, are, are quite similar. And since we had the only other um, approved biologic that looked like worked by the same exact mechanism as what was tried in China, uh, there was enormous interest, uh, not only by us, but by everyone, because there was a recognition that um, America and New York in particular might not be that far behind uh, what was happening first in China and then other parts of the world. And we've been in communication with Italy. There's really a tragic situation there. There's so many severe and critical patients. They literally have to choose who they save on a ventilator. No doctor wants to be in that situation. And so people were and are afraid and it's beginning to happen here, this tragic situation. So people were desperate. And everybody from you know, Governor Cuomo of New York and his, uh, the New York State Health Commissioner, Howard Zucker, um, and uh, the FDA and BARDA, who have been our partners, they're the rapid response arm of the Department of Health and Human Services. And we work with them on our Ebola treatment, uh, successful Ebola treatment, and on other successful projects like for the MERS coronavirus. They all banded together with us, as well as together with some of the great medical institutions in, in, um, in New York and now countrywide to say, hey, this has great promise, this approach uh, of blocking the oxygen. But the reports coming out of China are, are all anecdotal. They're based on uncontrolled data. And what we need you know, to really know, if God forbid thousands or tens of thousands or millions of people are going to be have to be treated, we really have to know whether this works because many times people thought based on anecdotal data that things work and it turns out that they were bad for you or dangerous. So everybody wanted to know. And so everybody based on this emerging data coming out of China, which is only a couple weeks old, it seems like forever ago to me now, but since it was the first most promising near-term potentially available treatment, everybody wanted to know whether it would work. So everybody came together. Like we had our, our CEO, Len Schleifer, was on the phone with the governor, you know, you know every few minutes. Uh, and we were on the phone with the New York State Health Commissioner. Uh, we were getting the head of the drug division, Janet Woodcock, at the FDA. We were talking to um, 
Barda. Uh, we were talking to the heads of the hospitals of Columbia Presbyterian and Mount Sinai and Northwell and all the great hospitals in New York. Everybody wanted to do this. And in record time, everybody banded together, I think, in a really impressive way, showing how the ecosystem can really work. Academia, companies, policymakers, government, um, the FDA, all working together on one cause to see if this really works. And in record time, we got an FDA-approved protocol and a study going uh, just this week to be testing uh, Ceruleum Ab or Kevzara uh, to see if these anecdotes, and we now also have a few anecdotes coming along about our drug, just like the original anecdotes with the um, uh, Shugai-produced drug in China. Uh, we're getting um, you know, similar anecdotes coming from our drug, and we really want to know, we really need a society to really understand, is this a real solution for these very serious patients so that maybe people won't progress to respirators or maybe people can get off respirators? It could be a huge contribution. And because we've all worked so fast together, it's possible that we could have answers within a few weeks, which is astonishing. I mean, these sort of things don't normally happen, but it's because everybody banded together. That's fabulous. So, so how many, in how many patients has your drug been used? You know, that's impossible to know because people are so desperate. They're using, obviously, neither our drug, which is Cerulimab is the generic name and Kevzar is the brand name, and the Shugai drug that's now sponsored by Roche uh, the, is known as Tisilizumab or as Actimra. Uh, they're both available. They're both approved and they're approved all over the world. Um, so there's probably so many desperate people. It's hard to know, um, you know, how many people have been, have been examined or, or given this opportunity off label. Like I said, we have a few anecdotes that pour in where people sort of say, wow, I tried this. The patients responded, great. Can I get more drug from you somehow or whatever? But what we need to do and what we're doing is this controlled study. And so we initiated the study this week, um, already just in the first um, few days here, um, uh, we have, um, we're probably going to have enrolled after the first week, a couple dozen patients. Um, and the goal is, you know, depending on how far the study goes, we have an adaptive design, but the goal is depending on how well the drug works, you know, with a, let's say a few hundred patients, we might have a definitive answer. And that's what the goal is. So do you think that um, doctors are writing scripts for the drug off-label, um, even even for people who don't show? I'm thinking about my 98-year-old mother and thinking, I don't know if there's going to be a, you know, we've got her under lock and key, but there's going to be a, a um, respirator available, should God forbid she needs it. Are, are doctors writing prescriptions for people who want to have that on hand in case they do get sick? Yeah, well... This is obviously, you know, it's a serious concern, as you say. It's personal for all of us. We all have either people already affected or people that were deathly afraid uh, might get infected. Um, there is a concern. One of the reasons this has to be tested is this drug actually blocks uh, an immune mediator and that it's actually been shown that it can actually double the risk of certain kinds of serious infections. Uh -huh. uh, not viral infections, but certain kinds of bacterial infections. So this is why studies have to be done. And I do not think it would, it would be a while until you tested that you'd really want to give it to otherwise healthy people 
in some sort of protective way. Mm-hmm. Right now, our study is designed to give it to the severe and critical patients who have a high chance, unfortunately, of the severe patients. I think I, I think it's about you know twenty five to thirty percent become critical, which means they go on a respirator, and unfortunately, half the people on a respirator die. So what you're saying is it, about one in eight of the severe patients are at high risk of death. They're all at high risk of death, but one in eight actually don't make it. So in those people, you're willing to take a chance and test this because of the benefit risk, even though there is a concern because these are agents that are modulating the immune system. So this is why we have to get it tested. That said, people are desperate. Doctors are using this off-label, and we don't know exactly how they're using it, which is why we and the FDA are desperate to get well-controlled, uh, definitive clinical data here. And so it, what is, in how many patients do you expect your, this study to involve? Well, right now, it's an adaptive design. So, but I, I, we're hoping... If the results are really, how shall we say, as impressive as some of the anecdotes coming out, um, to get a definitive answer, I mean, you, you want to, you know, even if the first few patients have a miraculous response, you know, that's not enough to get a definitive answer. Um, but the hope is with a few hundred patients that we can maybe get a, a, definitive, a definitive result here and we'll be able to then provide that information First, of course, to the FDA, so the FDA can make a decision that, yes, it is warranted to be approved, and I'm sure if the data warranted, the FDA is going to do everything it can to rapidly make it available, but then also to make all that data available to treating physicians so they know for which patients it actually works and how well it works, and maybe there's some, in some patients, maybe you shouldn't give it to those patients, so we're hoping to accrue that data, which is what you do normally in clinical trials and why clinical trials are so important. So let's assume that the FDA, the data is great, the FDA approves it. How about the capacity to produce it? Well, right now, um, we can hopefully treat hundreds of thousands to millions of patients just with, um, you know, some of the, you know, some of the, not only the existing drug, but drug stores and drug that we can make quickly. But this is also another reason why we need to get answers quickly because, we have to be making decisions that, and we also have to be seeing what's happening with this possible epidemic and how many people are in this situation, whether, you know, whether we have enough supply or should we should be really gearing up, you know, instantaneously to make it because the numbers are going to be a lot worse. So these are, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're trying to figure it all out and make the best decisions we can in a short amount of time as possible. But the first thing that we were focusing on was, um, making sure that we get definitive data so we know for sure, because this is what everybody's praying for, right? Everybody's praying that if God forbid they or their loved ones or their friends are in this position where they're at the high risk of dying, physicians can offer them something that is proven to dramatically increase their chance of success. So from your lips to God's ears, let's hope this all works out and let's hope the data is great and let's hope the FDA approves it, and then we'll figure out we'll figure out how to get it to all the patients who need it. We've evolved these immune systems in our bodies, and long before there were vaccines, um, our our bodies uh, produced antibodies against um, invade, invasive uh, microbes. So, when help us understand 
when does the the body without the aid of a vaccine succeed in um, creating antibodies through its immune system, and when does it fail? Okay, well, basically every time you are challenged with a pathogen, a bacteria or a virus, whether it's the flu, polio, chickenpox, your immune system always starts trying to fight it. And it depends on how virulent, how, how serious that infection is in terms of what percentage of the population actually survives. So um, for something, let's say, um, you know, like the common cold, almost everybody successfully fights the common cold and gets over it after a few days, and it's not, you know, a huge challenge. For something like polio, a huge percentage of the population, um, by the time their immune system controlled it, it had already killed, essentially, uh, the motor neurons in the spinal cord, and people became paralyzed. So it's a, it's a war, it's a battle between the virus and your immune system. Uh, and sometimes for some viruses, the immune system generally always wins, like for the common cold. And for some viruses, the virus wins way too often. In the case of the coronavirus, um, it seems like the vast majority of the people, especially the young and the healthy people, their immune systems win and the disease is relatively mild. It's just that for a small percentage of the population, the older that you get, um, the immune system doesn't win. And it is actually true that the older you get, your immune system sort of uh, takes a little longer to kick in. And that perhaps explains why older people don't do as well with most diseases, but in particular, uh, this disease. Okay, um, that's very helpful. And, Thank you. And, and, and I should say that basically this whole concept uh, started in, in terms of taking advantage of the immune system. It started um, over 100 years ago. There was a guy named Von Behring who was... Uh, given the Nobel Prize, because related to what we're talking about, back then, bacteria infections were often lethal. The body couldn't mount an immune response in time. And one very common um, infection back then was diphtheria. I'm sure we all remember and have heard of diphtheria. Now, everybody gets a DPT, uh, diphtheria, uh, pertussis, and tetanus, tetanus vaccine, which protects us against that, so we don't have to worry about it. But this all started you know, back in the late 1800s, when this guy, Von Boring, uh, saw that so many people were dying, but every once in a while, a human would survive. So he did an experiment in rabbits. He actually injected um, a bunch of rabbits, and almost all of them died. And then a few rabbits survived. He took the serum out of the surviving rabbits, and he injected them to fresh rabbits, challenged the fresh rabbits with diphtheria. And now, instead of most of them dying, most of them survived. So he said, oh my God, there's something in the serum that is anti-diphtheria. It's an anti-serum. And that led actually to uh, the creation of the first biopharma companies. But it was only in the 90s, late 90s, in fact, that we started substituting for some of these human anti-serums with what are known as purified monoclonal antibodies. Um, and which ended up being much safer because they're a purified uh, component and um, they're also can be human or human-like, so you don't tend to have a reaction against them that, that could actually harm you. Um, you know, in interestingly, the first company that was formed by Von Behring and Erling ended up being one of the predecessors to 
um, are now partners, Sanofi. It was the the company was uh, Aventus Bering, uh, named after Bering, von Bering. Uh, and it's unbelievable to me that we're sort of connected to them through the partnership with uh, Sanofi. Yeah, it's a terrific uh, uh, scientific and historical look back. Let, let me maybe step back and just take a really big picture view uh, so everybody understands that there's really, other than containment to try to, which is what we're all trying to do, as you've just described, so that it may it may turn out that a lot of us get infected, but if we can slow the rate, then it gives a better chance for the healthcare system to deal with it, because right now the healthcare system is inundated with this. Ultimately, the most important and the final answer would be an active vaccine, sort of like what you can give with the flu every year. Uh, that could give active immunity to millions, if not billions of people. That is something, as you said, I mean, this is an ecosystem. There's a lot of great companies out there. That's not something that we work on. Um, uh, but, you know, from the biggest companies, from the Pfizer's and the J&J's and our own partners at Sanofi to some of the hottest, you know, biotechs like Moderna and BioNTech, I mean, they're all doing what they can, coming together uh, and even working together to, to look at what they can do there. Okay, but that's not our area. But what the middle area, I, I would say, like before, before you have a vaccine, what we can do is we can essentially mimic outside of the body what a vaccine does, which is a vaccine is intended to generate an immune response that protects uh, the individual um, against whatever they're vaccinated against. And how does that vaccine work? it creates antibodies. And that's, that's the so-called immune response that are directed against the virus. They, the antibodies literally bind and neutralize and kill the virus. Um, and that's what a vaccine does. It generates this immune response known as antibodies. And uh, what we're able to do, and I'll get back to this in a second, we're able to mimic this process, making these antibodies um, essentially in bioreactors and giving them to patients who haven't had a chance to be vaccinated or in this case where there's no vaccine available and essentially acting like a surrogate for a vaccine. Uh, the difference between an active vaccine and this is our injection will only last for a month or a couple months at most, uh, which is why for permanent immunity in the population, you want an active vaccine. But we can come up with a nearer term immediate replacement for vaccine to protect people just like a vaccine does. It's just that you have to take the shot every month or every few months. So that's the second approach. And it's sort of what can come before a vaccine. And we're hoping it could actually come by this summer. So let's talk about the work you did in Ebola and what that may lead to. Right. So that harkens back to the whole vaccine concept and the fact that, you know, it, it can take, in some cases, uh, and Tony Fauci, the head of the NIH, NIAID, you know, has, has estimated that, you know, don't expect a vaccine for coronavirus, you know, before one to two years, because that's how long it takes for these sorts of things. And so uh, we have an alternative, which we produce outside of the body, what a vaccine is intended to produce inside of the body, but because we can highly purify it and so forth, it can, ha and manufacture it, it can be delivered much more quickly to people than, than the vaccine solution does. So uh, we did this for Ebola. And so what's, what's the potential timeline for that? Yeah. So um, we've sort of set the world record before. So basically, and this is all I have to say, um, you know, our, our efforts in this are all under this 
phenomenal young scientist who leads our uh, efforts in this area, Christos Kiratsis, and he put together what we call a rapid response uh, adaptation of all of our technologies. We have these very powerful technologies. In fact, Kizara was developed using essentially exactly the same technologies. We have this, what we call this humanized immune system mice. We've genetically humanized the immune system and uh, we use it to produce most of our drugs um, and it produced Kizara. But what he adapted it to was to respond to these infectious disease threats and he developed a platform together with many collaborators of his at Regeneron that can respond incredibly quickly. So basically, in the case of MERS, which is his first sort of example when he tried this rapid response approach, it probably took a year, year and a half to go from starting the project to patients. Uh, with the treatment, an antibody cocktail that bound and blocked the virus, essentially, you know, giving patients exactly what a vaccine would generate with them, but without having to develop a vaccine. Um, uh, fortunately, the MERS epidemic did not really emerge, um, so that story sort of faded away. But uh, then he did it again for Ebola, and then he cut his timeline there from beginning the project to delivering an antibody for human trials in nine months. That really is probably one to two years ahead of what could be done with more conventional technologies. And now, and of course, that treatment worked in a study that was sponsored by the World Health Organization. They did a great job carrying out the, the, um, the trial in the Congo, and it showed that our antibody cocktail in people who were at early stages of disease saved about 90% of them, and people in late stages of disease still saved more than 50%, and it's pretty astonishing. Uh, there was, I should say, there was another antibody in there that was developed by a consortium of a bunch of people starting from a survivor of Ebola that was identified in the Congo uh, by, by this guy who's actually been leading, famous for leading, you know, the, the humanitarian efforts there. Um, and it took 11 years for that antibody to, to be developed from the survivor to eventually be to the point where uh, it could be used in humans. We did it in nine months, and we actually produce a cocktail of three antibodies. And why is that so important? We all know that viruses can mutate. And this is why they give cocktails of, let's say, HIV drugs. Because if you only give one, you tend to get mutants. So it took 11 years for one antibody. In nine months, we were able to make a cocktail of three highly potent antibodies. Any one antibody could work alone, and this protected against mutations that would in inactivate or lose the, cause loss of activity in any of one of the antibodies. So he did that, and now he adapted the same technologies, took them up another notch with all his other collaborators at Regeneron, and now they've delivered this, well, they're hoped to. I mean, everything's on schedule, and our press release sort of summarized exactly because, you know, normally we don't put press releases on stages of R&D development projects like this, but since the whole world is watching, um, we uh, put out a press release to update to say that everything's on track and it looks like we will be in large-scale manufacturing of our antibody cocktail against the coronavirus uh, in, in, in about three weeks, uh, and which will enable us within about two months from there in, in, in the June timeframe that we will have tens of thousands of doses to be testing in human trials. And do you have to uh, enlarge your, your manufacturing capacity ahead of time to do that, or does it already pre-exist? Well, we have 
um, two large manufacturing facilities, uh, one here in the United States and one in Ireland. We're already um, um, adapting uh, and modifying um, uh, our, our manufacturing to gear up to make uh, quite a bit of this. So, so we do have capacity. It requires you know, a lot of moving parts and it requires a lot of orchestration to free up capacity to do this. But we're hoping that we can be making hundreds of thousands of doses per month uh, by this summer. Um, and uh, we could even hopefully be able to take it up several fold from that. But that said, uh, you know, this is an ecosystem. We're already talking to potential collaborators um, to see whether um, um, other people might be interested in joining up on this and seeing whether um, um, they would be interested in adding capacity. You know, I think, I, of course, obviously, uh, bio and, and I in particular do a lot of advocacy work. And you've also, given given the uh, sad state of the of the the um, biopharmaceutical industry, which, in my opinion, is not at all deserved, or for the most part, um, you've already had New York Times just in the last day or two uh, uh, assuming that the industry is going to price gouge and make fortunes o- over all of this. And yet every single company, of, you know, we've got 45 of them working together, um, has said that's far from foremost in their mind. They, they, what they want to do is, is save lives. That's why they're in this business. And, um, and <clears throat> I think there's absolutely no, no potential whatsoever for people to not be able to get the drug that they need in this, in this uh, epidemic, this pandemic um, because of, of ability to pay. I think between the government and the companies, that, that shouldn't be a problem. Like you said, I, I think that for a long time now, I think we've been having the wrong conversations about drug pricing in healthcare. I think that the world hasn't really focused on the real problem and the real enemy. And I've been saying it for years. The real enemy is disease. And the fact that disease burden in this country is so high and people don't appreciate all the reasons why disease burden is higher, far higher in in the United States than in countries, let's say, like Scandinavia and so forth. And that for most of these chronic diseases, we have nothing. We have nothing today. And, you know, people talk about drug prices and healthcare for all. Uh, This society will drown if we continue to accrue disease at the rates that we're going to, where now where we have 50% of the population obese and half of those people will become type 2 diabetics and they're going to need surgeries and renal transplants and they're going to be going blind. Um, you know, we still don't have cures for the vast majority of cancers. We still, heart disease is still number one killer. Forget Alzheimer's disease, really nothing very promising at all for Alzheimer's disease. We're going to drown under the burden of disease. And the only weapon we have against that is new innovation uh, coming from our ecosystem, the ac- ecosystem that we've depended on for a long time now to be the most productive. And I'm talking about the United States in terms of delivering uh, innovative medical treatments. But what we've been delivering is not enough. And we have to be upping our game. And as a society, we have to be figuring out how to up that game, how to change the incentives, starting from inspiring the best young minds to realize I mean, my president was JFK. He told me that I owed it to my country, that if, if I was interested in science and technology, I should use the power of science and technology to make a difference. I believed him. That's why I'm a scientist. When I was a kid, Westinghouse Science Talent Search winners um, 
which was the premier science competition in America, they were highly esteemed. If you won, okay, you were on the cover of the New York Times, okay? I was a winner. I was on the cover of the New York Times. I wanted to win that, okay? I was being inspired by society telling me that I could and I should deliver against this war against the real enemies, disease, cancer, all these sorts of things, okay? We've lost sight of that. And as a, as a society, we now have to recognize, and I... I, I I've actually been saying this for years, and unfortunately, you know, I think you know a lot of society is distracted on the on the wrong on the wrong issues. Uh, that all we, you know, the burden is so high now. All we needed was a little epidemic to show how we can't deal with it as a society. We're talking about healthcare for all. We got to be focusing on new treatments because the disease burden is so high. Society is eventually going to crumble. The analogy that I make is we're we're just bacteria in an Erlenmeyer flask. And we are killing ourselves off due to the disease that we're creating and due to the, you know, the pollution that we're creating. These are truly existential threats. And the only thing that distinguishes us from those bacteria that are on our flask is our God-given brains, our abilities to think our way out of that flask, to come up with new innovations. And I think there's nothing more important than refocusing society on the true enemy. We're all in it together. We're just those... We're one species. We're those bacteria that are all in my flesh. We've got to realize that the only thing that's going to save us against these truly existential threats, against climate change, against all these disease burdens and so forth, are not these policies. It's not like focusing on these economic solutions. It's on focusing on innovation, on creating great companies, a great ecosystem, inspiring the best young minds to join in on these fights. And I see that this is what the industry is doing now. I think this can be a great example of humanity together, the whole ecosystem, not just companies, coming together and, and showing that we can really do something, we can help out, and that these are the real threats. Stop fighting with each other. Stop fight, start fighting against the real common threats we all have. Band together, innovate, get, get the system focused on doing more and better innovative research upping our games and doing it to fight all this disease and be prepared for the next epidemic, but moreover, deal with all the chronic disease burden we already have in this country. And at the same time, get another set of the brightest young minds focused on solving, you know, our environmental and climate change problems. And that's where the solutions are going to come from. They're not going to come from policymakers. I'm just getting started, Jim. We are regenerating. We feel like, you know, we've been preparing, you know, you know, weapons against, against disease for 30 years and we feel like we're just getting started in this fight and where we see that there's so many other great companies that are doing the same thing. And we really hope we can all band together. And this could be the beginning of the end of not only coronavirus, but disease in general. Well, God bless you. Thank you for what you're doing. The, uh, it is not an exaggeration at all to say that millions of people are, uh, are rooting for you. And um, I think I need to let you get back to work. All right. I appreciate it, Jim. Thanks for the time and God bless. And everybody, hopefully, stay as safe as possible. Let's get through this all together. Let's band together and let's show our, our best side of humanity. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Jim. Our next episode will take you inside the biotechnology industry's work to deliver a vaccine that can outwit the novel coronavirus. People sequester themselves in their homes and worry about the health risks and economic impacts. It's all hands on deck for biotech researchers 
working to bring next-generation technology to bear to solve the worst pandemic in a century. The great battle has begun. It's biotech versus coronavirus on the next I Am Bio. Thank <laughs> you.